Hi, my name is Randy Roos, and this is Coffee Talk. Hello, and welcome again to the official podcast of the Guitar Department at Berklee College of Music. My name's Ian, and we have another episode of Coffee Talk for you. This week, we're joined by guitar professor Randy Roos. Randy's a professor of guitar here at Berkeley and a seasoned jazz musician. He's played with John Medeski, Bill Bruford, Victor Bailey, and is a member of Club de Elf and Orchestra Luna. He's also a sound engineer, producer, and a composer for TV and film. He's done scores for PBS programs Nova and American Frontiers, and received an Emmy nomination for his score for the film A Celebration of Architecture. As always, a lot of this content will also be available on YouTube, and we have a ton of other great content on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. So give us a like and a subscribe on whatever platform you use. Here's our interview with Randy Roos. Hi, everyone. I'm Kim Perlack, and welcome to another Coffee Talk. Um, we're here, as usual, with our assistant chair of guitar, Cheryl Bailey. Hey, Cheryl. Everybody, coffee cheers. And our senior coordinator, Ian Steed. Hey, Ian. Hey, all. <laughs> and our guest today is Professor Randy Roos in the guitar department. Hey, Randy. Hi. <laughs> Thanks for being here. It's nice to be here. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to get into a lot of things today. Um, but the first thing that people re really do want to know is, do you drink coffee? And if so, how do you take it? Uh, I drink coffee, but I only drink one cup a day for breakfast. So mm -hmm. I'm not having any coffee now. So I'd just be, we can think of it as virtual coffee, I guess. Well, that's okay. I mean, there's plenty of coffee in this yeah. coffee talk. And okay. um, how do you take it? Like, how do you make oh, it? Oh, I like it with some uh, half and half or just milk, no mm -hmm. sugar. Do you have like bean requirements or like? No, I'm not a coffee snob. Basic. No. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just basic. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And just one a day. Mm -hmm. So it's not a big part of my life, I'd say. <laughs> um, Randy, the other thing people want to know in the beginning, because we have so many um, listeners who are um, coming into school, is do you remember what your first days at Berkeley were like? And I know you've had several different first days in your life with Berkeley, but what could you choose at least one of them and kind of tell us what your impressions were and what you remember? As a student or as a faculty member? Really, it could be both. If you want to give us one of each, that would be great. Well, okay. As a student, um, my first experience at Berkeley was in 1969 when I was a junior in high school. And I took a seven-week course. At that point, it was Berkeley School of Music. And uh, I think it was 1970, it became Berkeley College. But uh, the only Berkeley building was the 1140 Boylston building. That was all that the school had then. And the thing that was so amazing about that, well, for, I mean, my mind was totally blown by everything in that, uh, uh, that summer course. Um, I was a very dedicated blues guitarist pretty much at that point. Uh, I had an interest in jazz, but I didn't know anything about it. But uh, my assigned private teacher was Mick Goodrick. He, ta he taught actually at Berkeley for a very short period of time. And I was fortunate enough to be assigned to him. And he completely, totally blew my mind. He gave me everything that I 
needed at that point. I had no idea. I mean, it's like he pulled a curtain um, back and revealed an entire world that I had no idea existed and that I was ready to embrace. And uh, so that was that was very pivotal. And uh, and then I. Um, uh, my yeah, so there's that's a first day that answers your question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's quite a first day. Yeah, um, and then you came as a student to Berkeley College, and um, and from what I understand from Mick himself, like you were his student at that time as well. Um, continue. No, no, I was at Tufts University. Oh, you went to Tufts. I okay. went to Tufts as a concession mm -hmm. to my parents, basically. And uh, started there in electrical engineering and um, switched to music kind of quickly. And they knew that they didn't really have what I needed. So they said, find a teacher and we'll uh, hook that up. And of course, well, I knew who I wanted. So I studied with Mick for about three years while I was going to uh, Tufts. And that was um, basically 70 to the beginning of 74. I left one semester early because I was in a group orchestra Luna that got a major Epic Records uh, recording deal and I just couldn't do both so I I never got my degree but yeah I studied with Mick through mm -hmm. that time mm -hmm. and then I actually came to Berkeley 77 and 78 for one very concentrated pair of semesters mm. and uh, it was right after that that I started doing gigs with Mick. Wow. Were there things that you feel like, I mean, could you talk about that sort of student-teacher relationship morphing into a professional collaboration, like doing gigs with him? Like, what are some of the things that you learned or stayed consistent or, you know, what are the things that you can kind of point to for people that you feel like how did how that developed and, and what it felt like as a professional versus as a student? Yeah, well, um, of course, I was in awe of Mick, and I still am. I would always be. Um, and, you know, we had a, a, a good working student-teacher relationship. He, we got along very well, and he was uh, extremely nurturing in his own very special way. And um, so, you know, that... I don't think that relationship ever really changed, you know, in terms of him always being my teacher. And um, when we started playing together, it was, uh, I guess it was in, maybe it was 1979, I guess. I just sounded him out of the blue for a gig. He said, sure, you know, it was a quartet gig down at Michael's Pub, which um, was down there near Symphony Hall. It was a great music spot. And uh, so we had a really nice gig there. And then um, what happened was the Ted Curlin booking agency realized that we were useful as an opening act because just doing duos, we started doing a bunch of duo gigs. And so um, it was very easy logistically, two guys with guitars and amps, you know, as an opening act, really easy to deal with. And uh, so we did a lot of duo gigs in that sense, uh, you know, opening act kinds of, kinds of things, which were amazing. We, played some really wonderful gigs that way and uh, and kept doing quartets we had a quartet also with Steve Swallow and June Saito June Saito drummer Steve Swallow bassist and uh, did that a few times a year but it was always um, uh, I would say you know I knew, I mean I was always in awe of Mick I, I knew his language so well because 
course, he taught me his language, so we could get to get along very well musically. I think we could um, react to each other really well, and and our harmonic um, language was very compatible, of course. And uh, so it was really effortless. We had we had a lot of gigs where just all kinds of fun stuff happened. Um, oh, another one that was really cool. We were playing with uh, Jeff Berlin a lot, uh, bassist. And he at the time was playing with Bill Bruford, the drummer with King Crimson and Yes. And and, uh, and they had talked together about doing a jazz gig sometime for Bill in Boston because he was interested in maybe trying some jazz. So we did uh, three nights. Um, one, let's see, one night at uh, Michael's Pub and two nights at Pooh's in uh, Kenmore Square, another great listening place that went away. But uh, so, you know, those are kind of interesting, uh, interesting gigs, different people, sometimes quartets, sometimes, um, uh, I mean, a lot of times duos. And, uh, uh, you know, but I always, I, I would always say I, I, I felt like I was mixed student, you know, and, and but he didn't ever make me feel that way. It's just that that relationship, I think, always kinds of kind of lasts if you have a mentor i think you're you always have that person as a mentor and uh, but we we just had a lot of fun playing together our languages musically were very compatible and and uh, it it was uh, it was really quite effortless i think one thing that you're touching on that would be great to see if you could develop a little bit that people always wonder when you have a strong mentor like that, and then you end up playing with that person, how, um, how do you see your own language developing? Because obviously you're, as you're saying, you're influenced so much by Mick and you're very compatible with him because you have that lineage and that history. But if you could put your finger on some of the things of, of your own that came that might've differed and how, how you sort of developed your own voice within that lineage while you were playing with your mentor. Yeah, um, that's that's kind of cool. Uh, when I first was exposed to Mick when I was in high school and I just saw this world, I envisioned really what I wanted to do because uh, Eric Clapton had been my main influence. Uh, I was fortunate to hear Cream live twice. Um, the first time I heard Cream, I think, was the second night of their very first um, U.S. tour before Sunshine of Your Love was released in the States, in, in fact. And it was in a small place, and I think I was in 10th grade, and it was, it was really a, you know, a very cosmic, mind-changing experience. And, and I'd been a blues player. I was very familiar with Clapton's playing when I um, heard Cream. So I knew, I knew his playing inside and out. I discovered him when he was with John Mayall. And, um, and when I met Mick and saw what was going on uh, on that side of things, I envisioned uh, um, what I really wanted to do, which was to combine my blues and Clapton-influenced uh, sensibilities with a, uh, as full and complete a knowledge of jazz as I could get and to, and to kind of hold those two uh, directions kind of paramount and to, to combine them and that's what I've basically stuck to my whole time so I'm a, I'm there's a lot more blues in my playing than I would say in mix in, in terms of when I say blues I mean you know electric uh, Chicago British oriented kind of blues uh, as opposed to jazz blues 
And, uh, and I've stuck to that. I still, you know, I'm still, that, that's what I feel my direction is. And, uh, you know, I'm, that's, uh, I think worked pretty well for me. Yeah. I, I mean, when I think of what I know of your playing, I also think you have this really beautiful lyricism, this beautiful tone for phrasing. And I know from talking with you over the years that you have this very deep theoretical knowledge and this sort of interest, this creative interest in, in all of the inner workings of things. And then sometimes when I hear you, I'm thinking specifically of a duo you played on one of our concerts, you played softly. And it was so beautiful because you played it so softly. <laughs> and it was just like, I mean, you could have framed that musical moment. And so I'm interested as a person who plays solos and duos in another aspect of your sound in, in the sense that you found a way to really sound like yourself, I think, but also in a way that complements others. And it's allowed you to have this collaboration with Mick, but also other collaborations with very different musicians who have their own distinct sounds. And I'm wondering if you kind of set out as sort of like, did you, when did you recognize that about yourself or did it just kind of come over time? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I love to jam. That's the thing. I just love jamming with people. Um, I've been doing, I've got, I've got a lot of new music I'm very excited about now. I have a trio up here in New Hampshire, bass player and drummer. Uh, and we've been playing together so much and we're really kind of telepathic and we just like to go. You know, we'll record. A lot of our recordings are no, no tunes, no structure, anything. And, you know, we just go. And then we do some editing, not not really severe editing, but we'll maybe shorten things a little bit. But uh, but I just love interacting. I I really don't like playing solo guitar. You know that is not my favorite thing to do, because what I really like to do is interact with other players and jam, and 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 create and just kind of go for it. And that means being really malleable. You know, you need to uh, make what you do work with other people. And, uh, you know, if, if, uh, if you've been exposed to a wide range of music, that can be very helpful. You know, I've studied classically to some degree, and, and uh, I'm, I'm aware of a, a somewhat broad spectrum of music, so that helps. So, you, you know, and if you play with people who are also aware of a broad spectrum, um, that can be really nice because, you, you know, if people have a good kind of big picture view of music instead of just, uh, you know, demonstrating their chops or their knowledge or anything like that, you know, and I say big picture, I mean being able to see uh, a musical event in its entirety, to be, be able to really relate to where this music is going directionally, uh, without any sense of ego or agenda, you know, not not like not having to demonstrate any aspect of your playing, just kind of playing for the music, not for your own ego, you know. And uh, when you do that, the music can go in so many different directions. It's wonderful. And, uh, you know, I just like that. I haven't really thought about it or worked on it, but it's just what I like to do, just to jam with people and let the music go, you know. Yeah, I think that's, well, it's beautiful, and I think it's evident, and they, and that's why um, you're able to play with so many different um, players in so many different contexts. Yeah, and, I'm lucky, I'm l lucky to have met people I'm really compatible with musically, too. That helps. <laughs> right. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so. right. Um, 
So while we're still kind of like laying the groundwork here, I want to make sure to to get into this other part of your career that you bring to the guitar department, which is all of the recording arts. And for those of you who are watching on YouTube, you can see that Randy is in his recording studio at home, uh, Squam Sound. And if you're listening, I'm telling you that we can see all of his uh, great equipment behind him. And so you've been a producer and a composer um, for a long time and an engineer for a long time. And I wonder um, if you could just kind of tell us how did that come about? And, and also, as you're saying that, are there parts of your performance career and your, and your just sort of work as a player that play a direct role in that? Yeah. Uh, well, I was an electronics geek when I was a kid. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I was always interested in that and, and, and recording. And, and uh, I mean, you know, I made my first... Uh, double track recording when I was in eighth grade and this was long before we had any capability like that. I, while I did, I was recorded on one tape recorder, played that back and played along with it and recorded the composite of that on another tape recorder. I thought, okay, that's cool, you know. <laughs> but, uh, but I was always into the electronics uh, side of it. I just, I have a certain uh, affinity for that and all of that stuff makes logical sense to me very easily so I'm very comfortable with all of that and um, and I just loved sound in general you know just um, just dealing with uh, how sound can be manipulated electronically and I was always into that in terms of how it affected my playing um, just guitar tone is very important if you know that affects how you play and I've been um, very um, you know, I've had a lot of fun working with ways of getting the kinds of tones that I want, and my kind of affinity with electronics has been very helpful with that. But, uh, but yeah, and, you know, I did a lot of TV scoring, too, which was um, very production-oriented. So that was, uh, and one of the reasons that, that I, I got a lot of work doing TV scoring was that I, you know, I had a natural ability to make things sound good. Mm -hmm. my uh, mixing ability I mean that came very easily to me very naturally to me uh, using effects and getting uh, making really good sounding uh, productions was uh, it just came easily to me and that was very useful in my uh, scoring career because my stuff sounded good you know mm -hmm. and uh, and also it uh, I had to work efficiently so I had to have my equipment really uh you know, dialed in and because and, if you're recording, composing, uh, executing and doing final mixes of three, four or five pieces of music every single day, you know, that things have to work efficiently. So I ended up building up a really good, solid um, studio that uh, like that, that was that worked well for me uh, where I used to where we used to live in uh, Roslindale, I'd, I'd uh, converted the attic into a really nice studio there. And then when we moved up here, we built an addition on the house that's actually bigger than the house. And one floor of the uh, addition is the studio. So, you know, I was fortunate to be able to set things up just right and, uh, you know, get the, uh, get things dialed in so that they worked for me. And, uh, all, all those, those, uh, 
those roads you have to go down to do that, you, you learn a lot, you know. So that it was all uh, all the work that I was doing was was feeding my uh, uh, my the whole learning process of that over the years. So you know, and I'm interested in it. I love it, and, and uh, things you love, you end up getting you know reasonably good at, I guess. You know? Were there things? about being on the other side, so to speak, as a producer and the engineer, listening to other musicians that taught you something about your own playing? Uh, yeah, I guess. Um, I've, um, I mean, I've been fortunate to work with a lot of really good people in mm -hmm. recording projects and, mm -hmm. uh, I mean, when you're when you're in situations like that, there's a certain kind of pressure. It's a it's an exhilarating kind of pressure. It's not a negative sort of pressure, I think. But but yeah, you always you're going to be picking things up from people. And and mm -hmm. uh, I mean, doing recording sessions with uh, you know drummer like Peter Erskine or someone like that. Or I did a lot of work with Victor Victor Bailey and and. Uh, I worked with some great engineers too, uh, especially in New York. And uh, boy, I was always picking up stuff from them. I would be watching them like a hawk. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, if you you uh, you have to pick up things from people that you work with, you know, every everybody's got things to offer, and there's just so many great people out there. And and uh, anytime you're doing something with that's uh, creative with something with someone I think there's uh, an exchange of uh, perspectives and, and directions you know it happens really naturally it's a great part of the whole process of just working with people is that kind of is that the yeah that that is and and I'm also wondering like from the perspective of a lot of people listening who are getting ready to make recordings mm. as a producer as an engineer do you see common missteps, common mistakes that performers make before they come in to record or like things that they should think about or know? Um, you know, especially since you also have, you know, you have the both sides of the equation, you know, you've played so much and now you're recording and um, what advice do you have to people who are about to make a recording? It's, that's a tough one to answer because I think it, it, it varies so much depending on depending on the direction of the music. Um, if it's if it's highly arranged music, you know where everything is, uh, all the ducks are in a row, and things have to be a certain way. Um, just having it really together when you come into the studio, not rehearsing parts. You know, having things um, together to the point where you can just play them effortlessly without uh, a whole lot of conscious thought is really important just so preparation mm -hmm. um, I think also thinking in terms of orchestration is is really important um, and you know being a guitarist a guitarist is a guitar is such an amazing orchestrational tool you, we have electric guitars we have all kinds of acoustic instruments we have effects that we can use but then just in terms of what we can do with fingers and strings, all the different kinds of sounds we can get out of a guitar. 
So if you're a guitarist and you're really thinking about a recording project, one thing to do is really think about all the orchestrational possibilities that you might want to explore and, and have, uh, have some ideas in mind. Maybe not ideas that you're overly um, invested in because you might try something and it just might not work. You know, you might think something would work, but when you actually try it, you find, well, it doesn't. But you, you uh, maybe from seeing how that doesn't work, it, it allows you to see what would work. So you have to be kind of open-minded and not perhaps have too big a stake in what you think you're going to be doing. But uh, on the other hand, to to still give it some good thought and, and imagine what kinds of uh, textures, uh, what kinds of additional parts might uh, be really useful in in terms of adding to just what the basic parts are, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, but again, to be really open-minded to what can happen in the studio that will change that, you know, where mm -hmm. maybe someone says, "Hey, how about we try this?" and and so that might change the whole view of something. And if you've got a good open mind, you can uh, adjust to that and go with it and maybe uh, end up with uh, uh, something better than what you had initially imagined. Mm. So, But I think it, it varies a lot, like I say, uh, depending on what actual musical direction is, is involved. If it's really free, then, you know, I mean, anything... Anything can happen. If someone has a crazy idea, go for it. Try it. That's another thing I would say, too. This has happened in, to me in the studio a lot, where someone say, well, what if we try this? And you can think about three reasons, logically or more, why that might not work. And you think, well, it might not, this might happen or that might happen. Forget all that. Just say, yeah, let's try it. <laughs> Instead of coming up with reasons to not try it. You, you see this a lot, you know, someone offers an idea and then people can spend 10 minutes discussing why that idea might not work, whereas you could take five minutes and just try the idea out. Right. That, that's a good one. I've seen that really come up quite a lot. Oh, that's cool. I have a bunch more questions, but I'm going to hand it over to Cheryl for a minute and, and ask you what's on your mind, Cheryl, at this point. Well, we those are all really, really great points on either side from a producer's point of view or you being the, the artist in the studio. But I was just thinking about what you're talking about with playing with others, how that's the most exciting thing to you because that's also something to develop and you get better at it you know, the more you do it. And sometimes people are afraid maybe even to play you know, and, and the better people you play with the better you get at it right but sometimes people are afraid to call you know wow that that they're really great players and they wouldn't want to play with me do you ever have that with the students or how do you encourage students to get past that so that they can get those experiences to play because as we always say you can only get better at things that you do a lot and you'll get better as an improviser or just playing in an ensemble rhythm section, whether you're playing funk, when you put yourself in those situations, but you have to challenge yourself. Mm. Well, I think one thing to note is that really great players are that way because they love to play. So the thing is, you can think, well, should I call this person up and do a session? Well, you know, there's so much there's at such a level beyond me, uh, they probably wouldn't want to play with me. 
But the thing is, they're at that level because they love to play with people. And they're not going to be, um, they're not interested in their own ego. A great player is, is really not interested in, in proving themselves to be a great player because they've already done that. All they want to do is do something that's for the good of the music. So anyone has, anyone at all who can play anything has something to offer. And I think, a, a, I mean, all the great players, I, you know, I've played with people that have been icons, you know, and, and I always find there's none of that kind of stuff. There's not, there's not that, there, you know, pressure from them to try to be at their level. It's just all about just having fun playing together, you know. And I think uh, that it, if, if someone can just realize that, that, that uh, someone they admire, yeah, they might feel... Um, nervous playing with this person, but but that's going to go away very quickly because because everybody's really in it for the good of the music, and that just means having fun together. So it's it's uh, I think that's the that's the mindset to be in. That's great advice, really, and not we often we forget play to play, right? Which is right. connotates having fun. <laughs> you know, yeah, call it playing for a reason. Yeah, like my 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 friend's uh, grandson say said, you know, hey, hey, Pappy, how 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 come how come most people go to work but you play? You know, what's with that? You know, but that's really that's what it is. We get to play. You know, we're paid to play. <laughs> it's great. That's great, um, Ian. I'm throwing it to you. There's because there's so many parallels here to some of this discussion to one. Randy, we were having a really nice discussion yesterday about um, improvisation, and and uh, Ian, you could take it that way or any way you'd like to. Take yeah, it. I mean, I guess what I'd be um, interested in because this that little bit of advice seems so relevant to musicians who are currently students, or you know, starting out um, a little bit earlier and don't have a lot of that experience that you do playing with a lot of these heavy players and feel that intimidation but how do you feel that that translates to like a student um in terms of that like you know when they get to berkeley you know it's i don't know if y'all remember just like getting here as a student and just feeling that weight of just like wow everybody here is is burning you know and and uh i guess to like get over that and to like get over yourself and really just play with folks like, is that something you really like experience with students or? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I with virtually all of my students have a, um, my private students at, anyway, and sometimes in classes, I mention this too, that uh, um, one of their, the most important things to do while, Ber while at Berkeley is to be networking with other players. And um, I think a lot of people well, I don't know if this is true of a lot of people, but I think there can be a problem with someone who says, you know, um, I'm not ready. I have, to, I have to work some more before I'm really going to get out there and play with people. You know, I just have to get to a certain point. And what I say to that person is, okay, so what day is it going to be when you wake up and you say, I'm ready? Um, because that day is never going to happen. Nobody ever feels ready. Because the more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. 
So what you have to do is immediately just start playing with people, you know, and I tell people this all the time. You have to, if you walk down a uh, corridor and someone's sitting there practicing something and you, you think, wow, maybe I could, this person seems kind of in a similar direction to me, just talk to them. Say, hey, let's get together in session, you know, either just as a duo or let's find a rhythm section, do something, you know. There's lots of rooms where you can play in Berkeley, so it's... Uh, or at least there will be when we get back to being in person. But, uh, you know, you, you just have to do it. It's like, how do you jump into a swimming pool? You just jump into it, you know? And and the thing is, nobody's ever going to feel like, okay, they've arrived at a point where now they're ready to really get their thing out there and start, you know, networking and, and, and all of that. Um, it's just not going to happen. You don't ever cross a threshold where you feel that way. So, so the point is just start doing it right away and understand that the networking that you do at school could be the best possible uh, career move uh, you could make. Your dis decision to really do a lot of networking can make your musical career. The musical relationships that people build in school will last a lifetime. And, you know, someone gets a great gig and suddenly they need a guitarist, well, that person would think of you and so suddenly you know you're called to do a great tour of, or something like that all of these wonderful things that happen because of networking uh, among everyone um, and so uh, I just encourage people very strongly just get out there and 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 make sessions happen approach people get comfortable just walking up to someone and say hey look you want to do a session you know and uh, and just just do it jump in the swimming pool you know I can almost hear someone's response to that saying like, okay, but what if I do that and I, I should have practiced for another month and I'm not good in the session and then they never call me even 20 years later. And I think sometimes what people don't realize is it's no one's going to remember, oh yeah, they, they knew every single tune that we did and they hit every note exactly right. They're going to remember how much fun they had playing with you and they're going to remember that great thing that you did play that sounded amazing and they're going to remember how the whole thing felt and was, right? Yeah, yeah, sure. And and look at it this way too. If you if you um, instigate ten different playing sessions, all right, maybe two or three of them won't be that great, right? But what about the other seven? You know, mm -hmm. if you didn't if you didn't instigate all ten of them, you wouldn't have had those seven. Yeah, sure. Not all of them are going to be great sessions, you know. I mean, there might be, maybe someone's not feeling too well. Maybe it's just, you just happen to get a group that's not all that compatible. That's going to happen. But if you don't make the effort, and if you don't, uh, uh, you know, if you don't do the 10, you're not going to have the six or seven great ones or eight or nine great ones, you mm -hmm. know. So you just have to uh, just do it. You know, so, oh, go ahead. You learn from the ones that don't go, the, the ones that, don't go the best sometimes you learn the most well that yeah exactly that could be a good useful kick in the butt for you like you realize oh okay here's something I need to work on you know mm -hmm. and um, that's that's always good it might not be fun it might be a little bit painful but uh, it, it's a good reality check for you and uh, and then another another session you might something might happen makes you realize wow this whole this this area of my playing I thought I was really weak in I actually kind of rose to you know I I, I kind of shone in this area you know you never know you never know what'll happen 
the more you do it, the more experience you get and the more good people you, you meet and create these musical relationships with. You know, kind of along these lines, but more specific to music, I'm wondering if you would talk a little bit about your experiences in which it was more of a free improvisation context. And the reason I'm asking is because we had a cool conversation the other day, Ian and Cheryl and I, about, you know, that idea when you're playing more free and you don't have like the structure of the form that because you're building it in real time. It's more of a spontaneous composition and how that can inspire sometimes this fear of what to play next. <laughs> and I'm wondering, like, how do you sort of put that fear aside and get into more of the, okay, now I'm going to build this thing with maybe with these other people. Like, how do you approach that? And I can see you smiling already. So um, if you're not watching Randy's face, if you're listening, this is going to be fun. So, go ahead. Well, yeah, um, there's a group that I play with. We, Of course, we, our venue hasn't been happening for uh, over a year, but uh, hopefully we'll get back to it. But it, it, there's seven people in the group. There's uh, two drummers. Um, there's a fellow who uh, has studied extensively in West Africa who plays uh, the Kamalangoni, which is the smaller African harp, and uh, he also plays uh, the African fula flute. And, the, uh, and does a lot of percussion too, so he's a whole different different kind of guy. We got a keyboard player, bass player, um, tenor player, and uh, me. And I guess if I think if you add all that up, you get seven. Um, and what we always do in our gigs, there's no structure, no tunes ever. And uh, now, one great thing, when you have seven people, someone's going to have an idea, you know? <laughs> and that's the thing. You might not, I mean, I might not, and I might not know what to do next, but it's all about listening, picking up on what's going on around you. And if you're not so worried about yourself and what you have to do, and instead you're engaged with what everybody else is doing and you're... you're you're listening and you're keeping an open mind and you're not needing to have an agenda, then stuff will happen, you know, even if you're just playing with one other person. Uh, granted, if you've got, you've got a seven-piece band, there's going to be a lot of stuff happening. It's amazing when we do that thing, how together it seems. People can't believe that we don't have tunes, you know. It's, it's really, it's pretty remarkable. But, um, but you know it's it's i think it's just all about relaxing not putting pressure on yourself and and really listening really being aware of what's going on around you because if you're too concerned about what you're going to do you're going to miss out on what someone else might be doing at that moment it's like oh what am i going to do you know i need an idea oh well there's an idea you know that <laughs> fine i'll just jump on that you know it's it's uh it's it's all about really being open-minded and not putting pressure on yourself and not having an agenda. So I have two questions for you. Number one, can you practice being relaxed in those situations? Or is that just something you have to learn by jumping in the pool and doing it? And number two, as you are spontaneously composing with the group, do you notice your own tendencies in your playing, and does that drive you home then to maybe go practice some different things? Um, well, the second part of that, I think we always find things like that. 
I think we, we are, you know, in any kind of situation, you can, you can see that uh, perhaps some work in a certain direction could be useful to you. You know, you realize, oh yeah, I should explore that a little bit more. That if I had a little more happening there, maybe I could have done more. You know, so yeah. Um, in terms of, um, well, if you if you're thinking in in terms of the practice of improvising, the whole idea of improvising, I think, comes from not putting pressure on yourself, like I said. Um, I'm, I'm real happy I'm doing this uh, improv lab in the fall, and um, that was started by Mick Goodrick. Uh, is that correct? Was that, that lab was the... Uh, the improv I, lab that I'm doing was originally Mix, correct? I believe so, yeah. And what I want to do is bring more of Mix con concepts into that lab and, and really kind of work with it that way. And what, what, uh, what he taught me to do at a very young age, and which I've done ever since and explored with all my students, is really the act of creativity itself versus, you know... Um, playing things that you've worked on, okay? Everything you've worked on is part of what you play, obviously, but if you're actually just in a, in a kind of meditative, creative state and just allowing yourself to, uh, to have ideas come uh, organically without any, any real, um, you know, pressure, I keep using that word, uh, that becomes a pure kind of creativity that can go in kind of any direction. And it can be, it could be just on a mode, it could be on a certain scale, it could be over a simple set of chord changes, it could be over a very complex set of chord changes. It could just be nothing, where you pick up an instrument and you just start creating. And that's what we have to do. We have to be willing to just pick up the instrument and create, within a context or without a, con a context, perhaps, you know? And, and that, that pure creative thing, the idea of, well, developing of ideas. Uh, a, a fun thing to do is to, is to grab your instrument, play something, anything. Don't try to play anything good, just play something. There's an idea. Don't judge the idea. Don't say, well, that was a cruddy idea, let me try something else. Just decide immediately, I'm going to develop that idea without judging the idea at all. And yeah, it might have been boring, it might have been mundane, you know, it might have been a stupid idea, but the development of that idea could turn it into something really cool. So that's the thing. I mean, a lot of creativity is not so much about the creation of the idea, it's more about the development of the idea. What do you do with it? And that whole process is, is really a purely creative and, and very satisfying thing when you can get into the right kind of meditative state to allow it to happen, again, without pressure. And uh, so, you know, I'm going to try to bring a lot of those kind of concepts into that lab. And I, I think that, uh, you know, it's something we, we all really want to look at, the whole, uh, the, the act of, of pure creativity, aside from all the the scales and voicings and techniques and chops and all of that, independent of all those considerations. You know, Randy, what this makes me think of, because, you know, you're just talking from the beginning about playing with others is really, that's it. You know, that's where it's at and listening, right? You have, 
you have the inner listening and you have to listen outside of you. And sometimes I think, you know, someone might mention a great player, like Wes Montgomery or something. Um, but, you know, when you listen to those iconic recordings where he was with, you know, um, Paul Chambers and Wynton Kelly or whatever, those kind of rhythm sections. Smoking you, at the half note, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't, it wasn't a monologue. Because mm -mm. you can hear him play with maybe, there's some, you know, videos and stuff. Maybe the rhythm sections weren't, they weren't those guys, right? They're good. And he's always going to play great, right? Because he just developed this thing. But what makes those things even, wow, like magical, right, in that realm, is because it was the way they played together. And I think people forget that. They go, wow, li listen to this great Wes Montgomery solo. But he didn't do that by himself. Right. Actually, you know, it was something that Jimmy Cobb set up on the snare drum or was a voicing that Wynton Kelly played or it was some figure, uh, you know, in the bass. And, and when you're developing those skills and trust, I think what you're also talking about is you get rid of the pressure when you trust, you could trust yourself and trust the other musicians. For instance, those guys back then, they played together so much, they developed that rapport. And just like you're talking you know, with your trio recently, you guys have just been hanging out and playing and, and you do get almost that telepathic thing because you listen to each other and you trust each other. And I think that's the thing that, that I think students often forget. They think it's just about the soloist themselves, but it's everybody contributed to it. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's trust and it's love. You know, I mean, you love these people you're playing with. And when you get to know them so well, there's no there's no ego involved. It's like you're not. It's it's there's there no there's no judgment of people. You're not judging each other because you know each other so well. You're way beyond that. And uh, and again, that 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 relates to creating musical relationships like that. It doesn't have to be with the greatest players in the world. You know, it it can be. It's just people you enjoy hanging out with. And people you um, that uh, you you have some compatibility with creatively, of course, you need that. But uh, but yeah, and then that that trust gets built up when you when you really know each other and you get way beyond the thing of trying to to where you know you don't care how they feel about your playing anymore. You know, there's no judgments, there's no uh, egos, and uh, it it. Uh, it just creates a, a really very healthy, vibrant kind of musical rapport. A uh, great example is uh, Coltrane's classic quartet, you know? I mean, and they never talked about the music at all. They didn't talk about it at all. They just did it, you know? And, and, and they, they knew each other, they loved each other, and they, they, um, they just made it happen. But yeah, it's a very good point. And but but the thing is, you got to make those relationships with people. You know, you got to find people that you can do that with. That's again why I'm always t telling my students network. You know, get sessions going, get branch out, approach people, be aggressive about it, and and uh, you know you know play with people a lot and make these relationships happen and grow. I want to bring up one thing that you said just a minute ago that I really loved when you're talking about picking up your guitar and, and creating something and creating an idea and not judging it and developing it. 
And I think that feeds into the second question that you answered that I asked about, um, you know, when you do that, when you go to develop it, if you get really excited about it and you try to make it into something else, then you might find areas in your playing. It's like, oh, if I had that tool of that data of that, like those chords or those scales, or if I had this like physical kind of technical thing, then it would be even cooler. So I should work on that. Right. So it's like an aggressive response to like going after data and going after techniques and things and sounds, but in the service of creation. Exactly. You know, which is the direct parallel to what you're saying in answer to Cheryl, like you're building relationships in service to the relationships and the music that comes from them. Right. You know, it's not like, okay, and now I will get my data and now I will get my chops and now I will meet the right people. It's like you're serving something bigger than you that's actually fun and based in love and and like kind of creating things. And that somehow does help alleviate the pressure that is inherent in all of those things. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 your point is is very good in the sense that um, you know, someone'll say, "Well, what should I work on?" And you know, they'll they'll look at uh, YouTube videos or they'll talk to people and people say, yeah, I worked on this. And someone else say, I worked on this. So, so they'll think, well, I should work on that. I should work on that. But maybe not, you know. We can't work on everything. A person's style, a voice, comes not from just everything they do, but even the things they choose not to do. So it's not like having to learn at all. And the thing is, if you see a need, like for instance, and I remember this years, many, many, many years ago when I was uh, practicing like uh, 12 hours a day and I had no responsibilities, like in the mid-70s. And um, all I was, I had my band, I had a few private students, I was living out in the country in Lexington in this little apartment on a, in a farmhouse, you know, it was great. But uh, I remember one day I was, uh, I was just playing, I was just being creative and I discovered I was having trouble playing lines that descended, okay? And now, so I, okay, I gotta practice doing descending lines. So I worked my tail off doing descending lines. Well, where did that come from? It came from a need out of my own creativity. In other words, I was, I was working, I was, I mean, I was just playing, just creating, and I found something I needed to work on that came out of my own creative impulse. It didn't come from you know, someone's saying, oh, it'd be really hip if you worked on this, you know. Well, maybe that's, it's hip for them. Maybe it's not hip for me, you know. And it's, it's, uh, it, when, when you discover a need to work on something that comes out of your own creativity, I think that's really valuable. Absolutely. I think that's really true. And I think that's a big one. I think it sounds so simple. Mm-hmm. But I think that's something that all of us need to hear at every stage of our development. And it's not something you would necessarily think about as a student where you really have to own yourself and own your sound instead of pushing it off. Like if I said to sometimes I say to students, oh, describe your sound for me, you know, like, and they'll say, oh, I can't do that yet. And it's like, well, I could do it if you played, you know, other people right. could are going to hear you, right? And if your goal is to sound like yourself and sound distinct, it would be helpful to know what that means for you. Mm-hmm. But I think it comes down to an insecurity thing, like what you're saying before. Well, you know, I'm not ready yet. And, mm-hmm. you know, so, um, and Ian, I think this kind of 
feeds into the question you always ask, at least in some ways. Yeah. Uh, so there's a question that we ask everybody um, in these, and that is, uh, what's something that students should think about or ask about that they might not even think to ask about, or they might not have on their radar? Wow. I don't know. <laughs> um, there's probably a lot of them. I'm sure there are. Uh, if you... Um, if you're a student at Berkeley, uh, I mean, certainly something motivated you to do that. And um, I guess maybe, um, maybe a lot of students have certain goals that they haven't fully thought through. In other words, someone could make a decision at a young age, perhaps, and, and think, well, okay, that's the path I want to go down. But if, if a person thinks about alternative, alternative paths, uh, maybe that can be good. That, that, you know, I think a lot of people want to explore music or pursue music as a career because they want to become famous. And... Um, maybe take that for granted. And maybe it would be good for students to ask about ways of having a really good musical life without being famous. And that, uh, you know, there are, there are a lot of opportunities in music that uh, uh, can be very creatively rewarding, but that might be alternative paths to what they think their path should be. Now, it could, could well be that a person has an idea of a path and they really should stay with that idea. And, and it might work out for them, you know. And uh, it's really good to have a vision and really pursue that vision and be, uh, uh, you know, focused on the end result and, and, um, and, and visualize themselves being successful in that pursuit. That's really important. But it could be that there are other things that could come along that could even be better for them if they are open-minded to them. So I don't know. I don't know if that's a real, if that's really an answer to your question, but I think it's a thing that comes up in terms of the whole kind of the idea of the road, the, the path that someone is walking down if pursuing a career in music, which is a weird thing to do. You know, it's very clear if you want to become an accountant or a lawyer or a uh, um, surgeon, it's very clear how to how to pursue that. It's not clear how to have a career in music. There's so many different ways of doing it, and uh, there are many very very rewarding ways that might not be uh, uh, the the first thing that that students think of. So I don't know. Does that? I hope that sort of answers your question. I don't know. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I think sometimes, I mean, I have seen, I've, I've worked with students who uh, they, I can tell they have a goal, but they also have a really nice strength in a direction other than that goal. And maybe it's good for students to ask their teachers about that kind of thing. You know, is there something, yeah, okay, I'm thinking about this path. Is there something else I should consider that maybe you could... Uh, you know, enlighten me about, could be useful. 
almost along those lines, would you talk about your recording labs that you have in the guitar department for a minute and maybe just like the benefits you see um, for students to come to you, even if they really mean to be performers, but you get them to say like, listen to this type of guitar through this type of microphone or get these basic skills together. Like, what do you think that gives them? Well, a number of things. First of all, it makes them think about their sound. Mm -hmm. um, this is an area where I think, uh, I don't want to make too many general generalizations, but I find that rock players, uh, rock and blues players, uh, have that a lot more together than a lot of jazz players. Um, they have really beautiful sounds, and they've they've worked on that. And I've encountered jazz players who don't really think about their sound very much. They're thinking about the notes and the voicings and everything, and not really worrying about the sound. And the point is, the listener, all they have is the sound. So, you know, it's kind of important <laughs> that the sound is good. And uh, uh, so I think the recording lab's cool because it it uh, it when you're recording, of course, it puts a mirror on your sound and you and it makes you think about it a bit. And when you uh, explore ways of working with that, that's a good thing. Another great um, thing, and, and this is for, for someone who's maybe a performance major, not going to be a necessarily production-oriented person, but more of a playing-oriented person, you got to represent yourself, you know? If someone asks to hear what you do, you got to send them something that is a good reflection, you know? So if you can make good recordings and, and with good sound, that's certainly going to be better than cruddy recordings. So, you know, that's, that's just in terms of, uh, of uh, representing yourself in a good light, that's rather important. And we have the tools, you know. It used to be we didn't have tools like what we have now, but... Uh, what you have on any computer is uh, the equivalent to what used to be a million-dollar recording studio facility, you know? So we all have the tools. We might as well learn, learn to use them. Randy, in terms of, like, writing and recording things for television, um, you've been doing that for a number of years, and have you seen equivalent big changes in that part of your work in terms of, like, what you get done at home or what's expected? Well, um, not really. I, I kind of retired from that um, in probably 2006-ish because basically I was the, uh, the, the house composer for a TV production company and um, the guys that owned that, that TV production company decided to retire. And... Uh, and I decided at that point my studio was doing well, and and uh, I really didn't I didn't really need to uh, do the scoring thing anymore, um, and I just felt like uh, I, you know I mean I enjoyed it while I did it that's for sure, but I wasn't I didn't really want to pursue new work for it because I I was I got all the work from that company that I could ever possibly need and. Uh, I did a few other things too. I did some of the Nova shows for WGBH. I did done, I've done some of that, but uh, but it's a very pressure oriented uh, you know pursuit. I mean, it's the amount of music you have to produce in a short amount of time is is uh, uh, 
it's quite a lot. And, and, and I got, I basically got to a point where I decided, okay, I'm a little older now. I don't really, really want all that pressure anymore, you know, so I'm kind of happy letting that slide. Uh, so I don't know. <laughs> it's... You know, that brings up a really interesting point that, because I think it's like the, at first everybody's worried about building enough work and like, what are all the transferable talents and and you know you're telling people look you really great in this area you might have these other areas that are related and you should explore them and then then if you do that eventually the good news is you might have a ton of work and then the bad news is you might have just an overwhelming amount of work and (laughs) and so you've at different points of your life have really you know for your own growth and your own sanity and and maybe the greater good of your musical and and personal and professional life, you've had to let some things go. And, you know, was that hard to do? Did you learn over time to kind of know when it was time to move on from something and trust that something else might grow or? Yeah, it happened really organically for Mm -hmm. me. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't anything like uh, a decision you make in one moment. It was, it was gradual and, you know, things shift in your life. You kind of, instead of just jumping off a cliff into something else, it's more like you're, you slide from one thing to another, you know. So I was doing less scoring work because they were, they were starting to think about retiring. So they were working a bit less. And then my studio was kind of getting, getting busier. And of course, I was, I was also teaching at Berkeley. So I, I had plenty on my plate, you know. But, uh, and then, I, you know, I really wanted to shift the balance back to my own music more. And, uh, and I've got a wonderful um, bunch of players that I've just lucked out in finding up here. You know, I had no idea I'd find people like I've found up here. I found wonderful players who, are, and we hang out all the time. We go out on the lake. We have a blast with each other, you know. So I found a really nice, vibrant, creative thing here that I've slid into out of kind of sliding out of the scoring thing. So it's all, it's all, it feels pretty organic to me. That's great. Um, Cheryl, what's on your mind as we're kind of coming to the end of our coffee today? Um, well, I really enjoy you sharing so many things, definitely about playing with others and, and, that you actively are encouraging your students to do that and, and make those connections to, you know, because it, it is, yeah, you're never gonna have that day when you're ready, right? When you, you've practiced enough and now I can go sit in tonight. Now I've arrived. Now yeah. I've arrived. So no, no. I think that's really important for folks to to hear and think about and uh, and and just that stuff about, you know, about in those situations is really about listening and trust and um, you know so that so that folks can start to enter into those situations with that point of view instead of being so self-conscious and nervous about everything and just say hey this is actually the point where we're all coming together it's about communication so uh, thanks for sharing that it, I think there's a lot we can all get from that yeah, when you're really just creating, there's no nerves involved at that point, you know. It's uh, it's just fun music. Yeah. You know, I'm like thinking about the whole conversation and a few things we 
didn't get to talk to about even we can have another pot of coffee someday and talk about more different things. But I, I think one thing I wanted to say, um, just for everyone who's listening to this one is I think everything you've said, Randy is, is like a really cool, like pathway to building a cool life, you know, like, and you know, and I, I don't, I mean to say that in all honesty, like you, you found a way to like, you know, you're a person who, very young, you came and, and had found a great mentor. Yeah. And then you had this really cool life of, but you kind of had, you knew like, oh, this is the sound I want and here's the person. And then you, you're able to get some lessons there and you built that beautiful relationship. And then that became this cool foundation where you're like, oh, I could build other creative relationships. And, oh, wait, you know, here's this kind of music and here's this kind of group. And then, oh, I could record people and I could write music and I could, and then you end up, you know, moving to this beautiful place and having your own studio and, and what yeah. people may not know is that you're a wonderful photographer and, um, you do spend time hanging out with your friends who you happen to play with out on the lake and, and, um, have found a way to live a, a life that isn't frenetic, but is very serious and also very fun and creative. And, and I think a lot of people don't actually believe that's possible in music. And I wanted to really point that out here. Well, you know, um, I, I hope I can get this right. I, uh, there was a, um, there was a little newspaper article written in a Boston newspaper years ago about Mick and me. Mm -hmm. And, um, uh, and they quoted both of us, but the best quote in that was something Mick said. And, you know, they asked him something about teaching and, uh, and he said, well, a lot of people come to me and they say they want to make music their life. Uh, but I'd rather see them make their life music. Mm. Yeah. And I thought that's one, that's, that's one of the best quotes I've heard about that, you know. And uh, that uh, it's... it's uh, I mean, it's a wonderful pursuit of life, music is. It's just fabulous. I mean, you know, when when I I think I how I ended up with this really cool situation just being a guitar player my whole life. It's ridiculous. It's, it's you know, that's ridiculous, but it worked, you know. And um uh, and so yeah, I've been incredibly lucky, I guess, but um but you know, that's the thing. Uh having a good musical life is a really good life. It really is. And and uh like I've said, uh, like I said to you, Cheryl, on, on one of our interviews, it's we're being paid to have fun. You know, if you're not having fun, you're not making good music. So you're not doing your job unless you're having fun. And that's pretty cool. There's not a lot of walks in life where you can make that claim that that's that you're really not doing your work properly unless you are having fun. And that's kind of cool. That's a good thing about music. That is it, really affects your, it affects your whole life. Of course it does. Ian, what are you thinking? I Well, I mean, I'm noticing, you know, the way that you approach music and the way that you talk about improvising and listening is so much about being open and being sensitive to the things that are happening and taking in and whatever's whatever that stimulus is, like going with it and then building something off of it. And to tie that into what you were talking about with students with alternate sort of goals or paths, like not simply laying down one path. I think that what you've been able to do 
really shows how open you are in that sort of uh, zeitgeist in terms of like building what you've done in that you aren't just a great guitar player who plays a lot and has this professional career playing, but that you're also doing like essentially film scoring or scoring for television and that you're also doing this recording stuff and that you're also like a really good photographer. It's like you've managed to like sort of use all these alternate paths without giving anything up on the other side, right? That like you can do other things and it's not like you're sacrificing any of the other playing or anything like that, right? Yeah, and they all feed each other, you know? They really do. They all have the, the different directions all help each other out, you know? I mean, one time um, I was in the midst of uh, scoring a TV show and I had spent, um, you know, I, I like to go into the mountains backpacking and photographing. And I'm fortunate because I have, um, my, my stuff is in a lot of galleries in New Hampshire and I, I sell stuff and it's cool. So, and you know, people buy my things and put them on their, on their walls. It's, it's kind of a cool thing. But uh, I, had, uh, I had done a weekend in, um, where, I don't know if it was, I'd done a few days backpacking and, and photographing and in the midst of uh, scoring a TV show. And um, when I um, delivered the music and I just happened to mention, oh yeah, this, I just got back from, uh, you know, another one of my backpacking things. One of the guys in, in the production company said, keep doing that backpacking, you know, keep doing your photography. It really makes, you always do good music when you've been doing a lot of good photography, you know? So, like I say, they really feed each other. And they, these guys, they, yeah, keep doing the photo thing. It really works for you, you know? So it's, it's, uh, the, yeah, all your creative pursuits, they can all kind of hook each other up and help each other out. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty neat. I think that's such an important thing for everybody to remember and, and a really cool, um, note to end on. Um, so I'm going to raise my mug, which is now empty. Um, <laughs> so I, I, well I have, done. I have no mug because I already had my one well, cup that's of coffee. As we know now, you prepare in advance. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so thank you, Randy Roos, for being on Coffee Talk today. Uh, thank you, Cheryl Bailey. And thank you, Ian Steed. And everybody will uh, be here with you on the next Coffee Talk. All right. Nice to see you guys, too. It's been too long. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Bye, everyone. All right. <laughs>